So open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I have a question for you this morning. Do you want to be used by the Lord? Do you consider yourself useful to the Lord? What would it take to get you in such a place that God could actually use you to do incredible things that he wants done on the earth? That's the only reason you exist, is to be useful to the Lord. That's the title of the message today, useful to the master. We're actually going to see that phrase here in 2 Timothy as Paul is encouraging Timothy to make himself useful. Don't just sit there like a bump on a pickle. Make yourself useful to the Lord. And so let's read it here beginning in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 20. He says, now in a great house. How many of you live in a great house? I got a great house. How many of you are in a not so great house? Wish you could live in some of the houses that other people lived in. Anybody like that? It's like, I don't have a great house. Hey, if you don't have a great house, good news for you. All you have to do is to be a part of the church because that's the metaphor that's being used here. The great house that he's using that he's identifying here is the church, not the building, not the structure, not the property, but the gathering of the Lord. You're a brick and uh, you get stuck together with another brick and pretty soon God builds a wall, you put a roof on top of it, you got a great house. And any great house is gonna have some useful utensils in it. So notice what he says. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver. Do you have some gold and silver in your house? Raise your hand if you have vessels of gold. Nobody's gonna raise your hand in church to say I got gold and silver in my house. You're just not gonna do that. But some of you have some, some valuable, honorable stuff. I mean, maybe it's a family heirloom. In any great house, there's going to be some great useful stuff. I'm watching a piece of confetti fall from the ceiling. And that's just a reminder that Jesus is still risen today. And we, that's just a little glimpse of the resurrection. I just, we ought to come back out and celebrate some more. Anyway, we're doing that right now. So in in any great house, you got some great stuff some gold and silver, but notice also, he says, but also wood and clay, you know, kind of like pots and pans. How many of you have some pots and pans in your house, right? I guess some pots and pans. So the Lord's making this contrast. Guess who the pots and pans are? Guess who the, 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 the fine vessels, the crystal vases and the stuff? That's us. That's, that's stuff that God wants to use. He goes on and says, Some of these things are for honorable use. Some are for dishonorable use. Look at verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use. Do you see the word use there? God wants to use us for some honorable stuff. When we do cleanse ourselves, and we become a vessel for honorable use, we are set apart as holy useful to the master. Isn't that what you aspire to? I just want to be used of the Lord. I just want to show up for work every day and make myself useful to the master of the house. Guess who the master of the house is? Who's the head of the church? Who's the head of the church? If you said Trent, you flunked the test. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the master of the house. Notice, and he wants us to be ready for every good work. 
I don't know about you, I wanna be useful to the Lord. When I first got saved, I just didn't want to sit in the background. I wanted to to make myself useful. And yet I found out that before the Lord could use me, he needed to change me. Before the Lord could get work done through me, he needed to get some work done in me. So rather than giving me some prominent position, some visible position, some, to do some great and mighty work that everybody could stand back and say, isn't he such a fine young boy? Isn't he so gifted? I just wanted to do anything and they're like, okay, Lord, so if you're not going to give me those big positions, I'll just do anything. So I volunteered to teach the seventh grade boys Sunday school class. How many of you understand that's more dishonorable use? No, I'm I'm joking about that. But listen, that's a hard assignment, right? But I found out years later that if you could learn to communicate Bible to seventh grade boys, you could probably communicate it to just about anybody on the planet because they've got some things that they don't quite, you know, get yet. And so the Lord was kind of changing me so that he could use me. Um, I would volunteer for positions in the church and, and uh, the, the high and mighty positions were all taken by high and mighty people. And so um, I noticed there was a job opening, opening in the church to be the janitor. And so I became the janitor in our church. I cleaned every toilet in the church and made myself useful. And I thought, Lord, is this the only thing you're gonna use me for in the church? If so, that's okay, but I, I aspire to be useful in a lot of different things. And, and I guess I'm being useful here, cleaning up the messes that other high and mighty people are using, but I, I, it's like, Lord, are you gonna use me for anything else? So I, I decided to prepare myself for more use. And so I, I enrolled in seminary. I graduated from college, went to graduate school, and I learned how to what the Bible's all about. And I learned some doctrine and wrote some papers and stuff. I graduated from seminary. It's like, Lord, are you going to use me now? What are you going to use me for? And uh, for about a year, no church would hire me. Had my resume going everywhere, but nobody wanted me. And so the Lord kind of parked me in a janitorial position in Memphis, Tennessee, cleaning office buildings. So here I am. Now I've got a seminary degree and I'm still cleaning toilets. So I finally became a youth pastor at a church in Arkansas, and then I joined this traveling road ministry through Life Action Ministries, which is, uh, many of you uh, know of Life Action, and I thought, what are you going to use me to do there? Maybe I can preach and teach and, and all this stuff, and, and they just wanted me to sing, and uh, some of you don't even know about that whole chapter of my life, but um, anyway, so I kind of did that, but then we, we lived, the, 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 the prominent people on the road, they had these trailers that, that um, needed their holding tanks dumped. Do you know what's in a holding tank? Do you know what a holding tank holds in an RV? Can I say it? It's poop. <laughs> so here I am, and... I'm still dealing with everybody's refuge. I mean, I'm just, I'm dumping holding tanks. And, and I found out even now that the Lord was using that so that he could use me. So I say all that to say this. It is an honorable thing to be used by the Lord to do things that are seen or unthings, or seen or unseen to do things that are thanked or unthanked, whether they are big or small. So 
if you feel like the Lord is not using you the way that you aspire to be used, you can be assured that the Lord is preparing you no matter what the assignment is. So, if you want to be useful to the Lord, then we're going to have to do four things. We're going to see this here in this passage. First of all, if you want to be useful to the master, get ready for honorable assignments. Notice he says here in verse 20, in a great house, there's not only uh, vessels of gold and silver, but wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. But notice the last part, ready for every good work. Every good work. Don't be content just to sit on the sidelines. Show up every day and make yourself useful. Are you ambitious? Is that a word that would describe you? You you aspire to do big things for the Lord? It's okay. That's an okay. Sometimes I think we get confused between contentment and ambition, thinking that those two are at odds. Notice what Sinclair Ferguson said. He's a theologian, a pastor, and he said this, Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord. Don't you love that statement? But notice the contrast between contentment and ambition. It almost seems like there's a competition between the two. Like, I couldn't be ambitious because I'm trying to be content. They are not at odds. Now listen, like we said earlier, it's just an honorable thing to belong to the Lord that God would set his affection on you and call you into his family and use you at any capacity. We should be content with that, but notice what the rest of the quote says. He goes on to say, not only to have a high ambition to belong to the Lord and, and, to be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints, at the time he chooses, and with the provision that he is pleased to make. Some of you may think, "Um, I think the Lord could use me on a tropical island in December. right now, and yet for some reason, God has you in Granger, Indiana, and you're having to wait for something you aspire to. And yet to be content and ambitious, it's not a competition. He's given us the provision to do exactly what he's called us to do in the place that he's appointed at the time of his choosing, and therefore we wake up every day and it's like, Lord, I'm showing up for work, I'm making myself useful, what do you want to do with me right here, right now? Someone has said it this way, we ought to attempt great things for God and expect great things from God while relying entirely on God not forcing what I want to do at the time I want to do it, but Lord, I'm just showing up for work. I want to be useful. I want to be ready for any assignment that you give me. So you may say, I wonder what assignment God would want to use me for. Maybe little old me, God would want to use me. Yes, he wants to use little old you to do some honorable things. Let me make a few suggestions. God wants to use you to model holiness 
to people in your sphere of influence. God wants to use you to love your spouse. God wants you husbands to lead your wife and your children. God wants to use you, mom and dad, to instruct and discipline your children. God wants to use you to care for the children of others. God wants to use you to mentor or to teach another man or woman or young person or seventh grader or child. God wants to use you to protect from some, someone from harm. God wants to use you to speak out against injustice. God wants to use you to advocate for someone who's hurting. God wants to use you um, and your hospitality to build a friendship. God wants to use you and your financial resources to fund ministry and remove financial obstacles so the gospel could advance in places where the Lord is not known. God wants to use you in a place of leadership. God wants to use you in a place of servanthood where maybe no one will ever see you. God wants to use you, some of you, to run for office, to hold political office, to influence kings and presidents and congressmen. God wants to use some of you just to share your testimony with your neighbor. God wants to use some of you to proclaim the gospel. God wants to use some of you to plant a church or to partner in planting and building a church. All kinds of ways that God wants to use you. We should expect, we should um, we should aspire to great things, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God, rely totally on God. You want to be useful? Here's the second thing. You have to flee from youthful passions. Notice in verse 22. So flee youthful passions. Now, I want everybody under the age of 30 right now to stand up. Everybody under the age of 30 to stand up. You've been sitting too long. You're, you're like 20 years old. Like, why? I don't want to be sitting here anyway. So I'm letting you stand up in church. Now, everybody look around at the number of people. Like half the people in this room are under the age of 30. I think that's pretty awesome. I think that's pretty cool. So listen, um, the, here's the problem. There are some passions that the people standing here have to deal with that the people who are too tired to stand don't deal with anymore, all right? So if you're standing right now, I'm talking to you. You can sit down for a minute, but I want you to notice what is not said in verse 22. Do you have your eyes on the page here? Do you see what it says? I want you to see what it does not say. It does not say fight youthful passions. Do you know why it says not to fight youthful passions? Because if you're under the age of 30, God knows you're a loser. <laughs> now, I don't mean that you're invaluable. What I mean is the youthful passions are not meant to be fought. They are meant to be fled from. Let me put it this way. Many of you that stood, you're in a relationship. Maybe you're dating someone. Maybe you're interested in someone. And there is unique temptation when you pair off like Noah's Ark and you start spending time alone with another person. There are unique temptations 
not to cross a line and enter into sexual sin. And of course, the debate for years is like, where's the line? When do I cross the line? How close can I get to the line? Listen, the time to decide where the line is is not when you are alone and there is a dark room and you're snuggled up under a blanket and there's a romantic movie playing on Netflix. That is not the time to say, I think I'm gonna start fighting the temptation I have right now to go over the line. You're a loser. You're gonna cross the line every time because those passions are not meant to be fought, they're meant to be fled. Sometimes the only way to win the war against youthful passions is to saturate that place with your absence. Turn your tail and run screaming in fear that you are going to sin because you know you lost the battle last time because you're a loser. God, I just wanna wake up, I wanna be useful to you and I know I can't be useful to you if I'm always crossing over the line and in, in, in following my youthful passions into sin. That's the, why, the reason some of you are not useful to the Lord because you're on the other side of the line. You're enslaved to youthful passion. So don't fight the youthful passion. Flee the youthful passions. There's nothing more exciting in a church that's full of youthful people who are committed to fleeing from youthful passions. That's so exciting to me. Do you know what the saddest thing is in a church? Is a bunch of 50-year-old people who have still not learned to flee youthful passions. So as much as we would want to obey that command, flee full passions like got that down, notice you have to replace it with something else. The verse continues. Not only flee youthful passions, nothing wrong with passion. Some of you need more passion for crying out loud. Nothing wrong with passion. But the passion has to be something that motivates you to pursue righteousness. Notice, and pursue righteousness faith, love, peace, along with, underline the word with, with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Let me show you the difference here between youthful passion and right passion. Again, nothing wrong with passion. You need to be passionate about something. Everybody's passionate about something. The question is, are you just passionate about fun or are you passionate about faith? Nothing wrong with fun. All in favor of fun, raise your hand. We have a lot of fun around here. That's why we have confetti that floats from the ceiling three weeks after we shot it off. So we like to have fun, but we understand that there are consequences to sin. And so short-term fun exchanged for eternal consequences is not a bargain. And so we give our lives to not just the immediate pleasure, we give our lives to our eternal legacy that we're gonna leave. Not just lust, what gratifies me right now, not just using somebody else to get what I want, but 
using my life to serve others because I love them. I put them in front of myself. Not just defiance. Nobody gonna tell me what to do. That's a youthful passion. No, but I pursue peace. Peace with God. Peace with my parents. Peace with my siblings. Peace with people in my world. It's not just a polluted heart where there's just everything that dilutes your heart through social media and everything you're watching on Netflix, but a pure heart to say, you know what? There are some things that can contaminate me and not make me useful. I don't want to be that way. I want to be useful to the Lord. And then finally, not autonomy, but community. Do you see what it says? You don't have to do this alone. You pursue righteousness with those who are also pursuing righteousness with a pure heart. We value community. We make ourselves accountable to others. We have people praying for us. We're committed to encouraging other people. We're gonna lock arms and do this together. God doesn't want you doing it alone. You wanna be useful to the Lord? Value community over autonomy. Here's the third thing. You wanna be useful to the Lord? Speak with gentle persuasion. Speak with gentle persuasion. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant, I'm from Oklahoma. That word only has two syllables. Ignorant. <laughs> Controversies. Now, has anybody noticed in the last 12 to 15 months, there have been a few foolish, ignorant controversies. Have you noticed? Question. Have you had anything to do with foolish, ignorant controversies? If so, notice the command. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant, someone who wants to be useful to the Lord, must not be quarrelsome, but kind. So here we have a contrast, quarrelsome or kind. The people that know you, maybe the people that follow you on social media, would they more accurately use the word kind or quarrelsome to describe you? Oh, I think everybody just ought to bow their head and repent right now because so often we think the Lord wants to use us by fighting the culture war. Now, you aren't useful because you are quarrelsome and fighting with everybody around you. Now, listen. The antidote to quarrelsome is not backing into a corner and never speaking up. There are so, some things so important that we must not be silent. But when we speak, we must speak with kindness. He goes on. To everyone, notice he doesn't qualify this. Believers, unbelievers. People that are hateful, people that are quarrelsome with you, People that treat you with no respect, we must not be quarrelsome, but we must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, verse 25, correcting 
his opponents with gentleness. You see, correcting is engaging. Teaching is confronting. But we do it with gentleness. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. The missing ingredient so often is just summed up in the word humility. Humility. That's what he's describing here when he talks about how we speak. The greatest hindrance to unity is not the presence of diverse opinions. The greatest hindrance to unity is the absence of humility. Without humility, we become self-righteous, abrasive, quick-tempered, and we assault anyone who disagrees with us. Humility is not the opposite of boldness. You say, Trent, the reason I come to church here is because you're so bold, right? Like, we should be bold Christians. But boldness must be balanced with humility. Those who humbly tremble at God's word are the only ones who are bold enough to risk confronting their opponents with gentleness. Here's the thing. If you're wrong in the way you're right, you're wrong even if you're right. Let me say that again. If you're wrong in the way you're right, you're just wrong. Even if you're right. That's so good. Turn to your neighbor and say, if you're wrong in the way you're right, do that right now. You're wrong. Even if you're right. That would change your next social media post. That would change your next conversation with your extended family that doesn't agree with you politically. So we quarrel over personal matters. We quarrel over family matters. Some of you right now, you're just quarrelsome in your marriage right now. Let me me just say this to those of you that are married. Quarreling doesn't mean there's something wrong with your marriage. Quarreling means you're willing to fight for your marriage. Now listen, the way you quarrel is important because if you're wrong in the way you fight, you're wrong even if you're right. And so quarreling says, you know what? We're going to lock arms. You're not my enemy. We're going to fight against the enemy. And there's something that's attacking our unity and our intimacy here. So we're gonna lock arms and fight together against this common opponent. It could be pride, it could be selfishness, it could be a thousand different things. But to understand, this is not a personal battle that I need to win. We're gonna lock arms and team together against what is threatening the intimacy in our marriage. And there's a way to do that with kindness and gentleness in a way that's able to teach, in a way that's able to correct. But so often, it spills outside of the marriage, it spills outside of the family, we fight against things politically, we quarrel with people that differ with us politically. The American political system immediately polarizes us, giving us the illusion that you're either this side or that side, you're either left or right, you're either progressive or you're conservative. And it just makes everything, every issue is binary. And all the people in this place agree and all the people in that place agree and we just declare war in the other one. That, that's kind of a casualty of our American political system. But it's not the gospel. You, you can be a part of any political party as long as you are committed to call your political party to repent and believe the gospel. 
That that's the way that you, you, you ought to, to engage in political conversations. But so often, we quarrel doctrinally, and that's really what he's talking about here in this text, is he's saying to this young pastor, there's going to be people within the church that are going to bring error, doctrinal error into the church, and we have to speak with gentle persuasion about things that are threatening the doctrinal unity in the church. So let me give you some thoughts on how to speak with your opponent with gentleness. And again, so many of these things are wrapped up in humility. Humility teaches kindness. That's what he says. Not quarrelsome, but kind. Every person that I disagree with is loved by God. Do you believe that? Do you say that to yourself as you're disagreeing with a person? Every person that I disagree with is created in God's image. They're an image bearer of God. That means they're stamped with dignity, honor, and worth because they're created in the image of God. I can speak with kindness when I remember that um, every person I'm speaking with is worthy of respect, even while they're disrespecting me. I can communicate respect to them. That's the way that we quarrel without, while being gentle. And then humility takes the posture of a teacher you see what it says? Able to teach. So I wake up every morning, you want to be useful? Move out into the world ready to take the posture of a teacher. Humility assumes that the people that disagree with me, if they knew better, they would do better. Maybe they don't know what I know. Maybe their eyes haven't been opened to the things that I can see. Maybe God hasn't hasn't yet given them eyes to see spiritual realities. And God wants to use me to teach them, hey, can I talk to you about some things that you may not be able to see? Humility asks for permission to share your perspective. Hey, could I just share a perspective with you? Is that an open door or is that a closed door? If it's a closed door, I'm not going to try to kick it down. I'm just going to walk through the doors that you invite me to walk through. Humility is committed to teaching only, not only the what, but the why. Teaching the why behind the what is so much harder than just teaching the what. Here's what I believe. Here's what you should believe. Are you able to teach why I should believe that? That's a lot harder. Humility seeks to understand before it seeks to be understood. Listen, if you cannot summarize another person's position in a way that they actually agree with the way you summarized it, you're not even ready to have a conversation. So often we create straw men, you believe this and because that, you, and that's not even what they believe. And that unfortunately is just kind of the way that the whole conversation goes on cable news and talk radio and and we absorb that stuff and we move so far from the heart of what the Apostle Paul is teaching to Timothy and to us about how to operate in the world. So, humility takes the posture of a teacher. And humility remembers Jesus endured evil without sinning. Do you, this, is, this is the hardest part of this whole passage patiently enduring evil. You ready for that assignment? You want to be used by the Lord? Sign up for that program. 
Lord, I'm showing up for work today. I want to be useful to you. What am I going to need to do? Yeah, today your assignment is to patiently endure evil. I'm going to need to remember how Jesus did that. I'm going to have to wrap my mind around how Jesus patiently endured evil. By the way, whose evil did Jesus endure? If you thought of anyone but yourself, you missed the point of the gospel. Jesus patiently endured your evil on the cross with kindness and grace and love and wants to make you useful in spite of the way you treated him on the cross. Now, what has somebody else done to you? Can you take the posture that Jesus took to patiently endure evil? Humility reminds us that we still have so much more to learn. Notice it says we're to correct with gentleness. Humility reminds us, you know what? I could be wrong. A lot of times I just start my statement with that. You know, I could be wrong, but here's my perspective. I could be wrong, but here's what I see. That is a position of humility. Humility fuels gentleness by reminding us of how gentle Jesus is. Because Jesus says, I am lowly and gentle of heart. And so we take the posture of Jesus. If you want to be useful in a quarreling situation, you've got to correct with gentleness. And then finally, number four, rely on divine intervention. Love this. Notice here at the end of verse 26, he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. Why don't you underline that word grant there, grant them repentance. Now listen, repentance is one of our favorite words around here. I've already talked about it, Heather, this morning. Um, all of us, you know, born into this world, um, allergic to God, addicted to sin. We're just kind of following our own passions and uh, we're just kind of headed away from God, doing our own thing. We think we are God. And so repentance takes place when God turns us around, we turn our back on sin and self and start heading every day, step by step, every step is a step of repentance away from sin and toward God. Repentance is commanded in the Bible. The first word of the first sermon recorded in the Bible by Jesus, guess what it is? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. Repentance is necessary for any presentation of the gospel. Any presentation of the gospel that leaves out repentance is not the gospel. And so we talk about repentance all the time around here. But listen, not only is repentance a command, repentance is a gift. God graciously grants what God commands. Before a dead, cold heart can repent, God has to issue a grant of repentance. Have you ever applied for a grant? Maybe going to college or something, you needed a grant. I, I don't have what I need to go to college. I'm appealing that somebody out of their resources that I don't have would give me what I need so I can do what I actually aspire to do. Repentance is a grant from God. So yes, repent, it's a command. But it's also a gift to be received. 
It's a command to be obeyed. It's a gift to be received. And so it tells us here that we are, uh, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. How would it change your posture toward people if you saw them not just as sinners, but as sufferers? How would it change your posture toward them if you saw them as enslaved by the devil? Because that's how he describes these opponents to the gospel. They're enslaved by the devil. They're in the snare of the devil. And so listen, that's telling us you can't shout someone into repentance. And you shouldn't expect someone who is ensnared by the devil to actually want to live for the Lord. It's not until those shackles are broken and they make a prison break and they escape from being ensnared by the devil that they can actually see what you see and come to the knowledge of the truth and their senses are awakened. Listen, that's, if God's done that for you, don't be proud and haughty and shout everybody into repentance. Listen, just humbly, graciously communicate truth Pray that God would grant them what he's graciously granted to you as an unearned gift. So I got a question for you. Do you have a salvation story? If you don't have a salvation story, you don't have salvation. It's not until God graciously grants you repentance and in response to what he grants, you obey the command to repent that God sets you free to do his will. If that's never happened for you, do not leave this building today until you have a salvation story. God, I've prayed that God would grant you repentance and you would come to your senses and see how good the Lord has been to each of us. Are you a Christian? Are you quarrelsome? Be kind. Repent of being quarrelsome and embrace kindness. That's repenting from quarreling to kindness. That's God's command for each of us. Now I want you to stand together with me. I want you to bow your heads. I want to give you a moment before we rush out of here. What has the Lord said to you this morning? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Don't lose focus here. I believe the Lord has spoken through these testimonies this morning. The Lord has spoken through His Word, His Spirit. Some of you thought of names and faces. Some of you thought of posts that you've made on social media. Listen, don't just repent and say, oh, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Some of you need to go back, seek forgiveness try to restore a relationship that was broken because you've been quarrelsome. You might need to get on the phone this afternoon. You might need to seek out a friend, a former friend. Some of us need to go to a spouse, a child, a parent, and say, you know what, the Lord spoke to me. I haven't seen it before, but I came to my senses today, and I understand how much damage I've done. I want to be useful to the Lord. As a matter of fact, why don't you tell him that right now? Say, Lord, I want to be used by you.
I want to make myself useful to you. I want honorable assignments. So Lord, change me, purify me, cleanse me. And I want to show up every day ready to be used. Father, I pray that your spirit would continue to remind us and and before we would cross a line, God, call us back. And we know that anything good in us, any inclination we have to serve you, any desire to obey is simply a grant of your grace to us. We're so grateful that you would count us as someone you would want to use to get your work done in our lives. God, make us the kind of church that is known for its kindness, that's able to correct with gentleness. We pray it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.